welcome to Getting to the Crux of It, a podcast where we discuss robotic industrial process automation and everything about it. Each episode, we have candid conversation with our guests who are industry leaders in their area and bring enticing stories and insights. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Vicki Knott, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rebecca Greenan. Great. Thanks, Vicki. Uh, on today's episode, we are going to explore how something as simple as control room design can have a huge impact on a company's bottom line. I'm excited to continue a conversation that Vicki and myself had with our guests earlier this year. Today, we're talking with Ian Nimmo, founder and CEO of My Control Room, a company that focuses on situation awareness, human factors, and abnormal situation management within the control room. Ian Nimmo is an industrial expert in abnormal situation management and has recently been inducted into the Process Control Hall of Fame. We also have Chris Heil, Director of Design for My Control Room. As an architect, Chris has spent over 25 years working with operators, engineers, and plant managers to to design control rooms using a method that improves human performance by understanding the responsibilities of the operators. Together, they work to integrate the control room environment and interfaces to ensure operators are aware of what is happening now, what is happening before, and what will happen next. Welcome, Ian and Chris, to today's show. Thank you. Great. Good to have you guys. Um, they say yeah, something as simple as control room designs. So we're about to learn that it's not quite so simple. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a lot more involved. Um, Ian, in your introduction, we said that you were inter- you were inducted into the Process Control Hall of Fame. What is that? I'm I'm curious. Tell me a little bit more about that. Um, Control Magazine uh, started this a few years ago, and basically to recognize industrial leaders in automation. And um, it's uh, each nominee is is nominated by uh, the industry themselves. So basically, uh, our control engineers, automation engineers, etc. And they induct about three people uh, every year into the Automation Hall of Fame. And uh, I had the privilege in uh, 2020 of being inducted uh, for the work I did in abnormal situation management. And uh, for some of the experiences I've had in automation over the last 50 years. Great. That's cool. That's really, really cool. Yeah, that's cool that it's being recognized. I'm, I'm loving that. Um, so, yeah, so I'd love to, to, to jump over to Chris. Um, why, like from your perspective and, and all your guys' experience, you know, why is a control room environment uh, so important? Um, and we'd love to hear more about like the human factors aspect. Uh, An operator is shaped by their environment. So many of the control rooms we see have a negative impact on the operators and causing them to be more complacent uh, and reactive. And these uh, poor environmental issues can range from lighting. So poor lighting conditions. Many of the control rooms we're asked to assess are dimly lit, Um, The overall type of lighting fixtures and systems selected by the original designers aren't well suited for a 24 by 7 environment, uh, leading to things like screen glare issues. And this is why we tend to see dimly lit control rooms um, in the industry. And uh, so some of the other challenges uh, with control room environments are acoustic in nature. This could be due to hard surfaces, uh, 
and even like the shape of the room. So poor acoustics in control rooms can result in miscommunications with outside operators, uh, in inaudible alarms, et cetera. So we've even seen, uh, we've actually seen poor acoustics lead to sort of a, a volume level war between operators uh, oh. with their with their competing alarms and, and radio traffic. So one guy turns it up and then the other guy turns his up and it, it becomes this kind of uh, uh, audio war. So, uh, but, but I think, I think one of the biggest issues, and it's not normally just, it's not noticeable when you enter a control room, but the HVAC issues are a big impact uh, that we see. So you can incorporate all of the good control room design guidelines, uh, international standards. But at the end of the day, if the operators, uh, they're distracted because it, either they're too hot or they're too cold, uh, all of those good design practices sort of fall behind the scenes. So, so we try to implement good environmental conditions surrounding the operators so that they can focus on their tasks and become more proactive, responsive, with their operating units and and not be distracted by a poor working environment. So we try to take that out of the, uh, out of the equation. Yeah. And to like the, you know, the screen glare one that you talked about first, if there's a glare on your screen, you're not going to want to look at your screen. And that's uh, like a pretty pivotal um, item that, uh, that needs to be thought about that, you know, can be easily overlooked. Yeah, um, yeah, and you try and you try to correct it by dimming the lights, which is kind of compounding the uh, the issues with uh, situation awareness by having operators that are on a twelve hour shift yeah. in a dark room. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and and you know, and then you start like I know if I was for in <laughs> in a dark room for twelve hours, I'd start getting a little sleepy, right? Like it's it's inevitable. Yeah, exactly. We've we've chatted a bit about what what Crux does and robotic industrial process automation, and you know our goal to help alleviate control room operators' uh, workload burdens, but doing it through automation, you know, at the console and and helping them that way by automating, you know, their procedures, checklists, and rules of thumb. You guys have heard it, but like I love to equate to, you know, you're not going to get in a in a plane without autopilot software, but you also want a pilot. And, and you know, we're working to uh, to build the same the same thing for control room operators. So I'd love to talk a little bit with you both about um, the synergies between uh, Crux, and, you know, robotic industrial process automation, and and my control room and the great work that uh, that you guys do. So I'd love to hear from you both um, a little bit on your thoughts of how you know, automating, helping to automate the tasks at the console, how that can help with human factors um, or other uh, other control room items that uh, that you guys are, you know, addressing and concerned with. Yeah, one of the things when we, we started our company, uh, user-centered design services, um, we got into the business because of the uh, poor performance of operators and the number of accidents that were, were happening in the industry. So one of the things that we've we've tried to do is to understand how automation and how the human element work together. Um, one of the things that we've seen because of the move to advanced control, um, we see the operators really struggling uh, to keep abreast of what's happening and to have that good situation awareness. Um, in some ways, they become out of the loop. 
one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to find ways to keep the operator in the loop and uh, give them good situation awareness. And that's why we do some of the things that we do in the control room design. But from an automation perspective, we also have to think about things like the human machine interface and so that the operators have, have got a good view and understand what's going on. So basically, we try to take data and transform it into information and putting data into context, uh, which is a big deal, which is what big, probably one of the biggest changes in HMI design is putting that data into context. Normally, we just give operators hundreds of numbers and it's up to them through their own knowledge to understand whether that number is a good number or a bad number. Whereas today we're using techniques that will basically allow the operator to see whether it's off normal or it's abnormal. And basically, how do they get it back into the normal operating range? So uh, this has changed from, as Chris mentioned, um, operators being reactive to today, our goal is to make them proactive and to be able to be able to predict um, some events and be ahead of them and get there before the avalanche of alarms comes in. Yeah, so Ian, that's great. And that um, just as we talk about that, and I think one of the important things for our audience is to really understand that evolution of the control room. And I've seen pictures of what they used to look like like 50 years ago to some of the control rooms that you guys have done today, and they're unbelievable. But if you, you know, as you're you're looking at that evolution in your guys's from your seat, what are some of the best things that have actually been put in place um, to really evolve that control room? I, I guess, I suppose in order to understand where we are today, you need to take a brief look at control room design history. So ever-changing technologies in the industry, they've had a, a great impact on control room designs. And many of our present day poor working environments are a result of this evolving technology um, of, a, of an existing 1950s control room that was initially designed for long pneumatic panel displays, panel boards, and then evolving as technology involves, uh, involving those rooms for computer controls with the introduction of, uh, of DCF. Uh, no, it's interesting because I think like even with control rooms, we're starting to see that design in everything that we do. Um, so it's not just control rooms, but even looking at houses and buildings and everything else, how we just work better as human beings if we're set up correctly. So it's nice to see that it's actually made its way into the control room. So Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that uh, happened, though, in this transition, we, we there were some good practices about the old control room. And um, unfortunately, as we evolved, um, we dropped some of those practices. So, for example, with the pneumatic panel of the 1950s, the panels were designed to be task-orientated so that the operator would come in and he could solve a problem. Everything was in the right place, and he didn't have to run up and down the panel to make moves. Um, basically, he could he could do a whole group of things, a task-orientated thing, uh, because the design of the layout of the instruments was there. And one of the big complaints we got as we've evolved and moved to computer-based uh, interfaces is the operator said they lost the big picture, whereas before they could look down the panel and basically just through pattern recognition, 
they could see that everything was lined out, as they used to call it. Everything was running correctly, and everything was balanced in the middle so that, um, you know, basically if there was a deviation, it stood out. And we lost that, and um, we lost the big picture. So one of the things that technology has allowed us to do is to bring back that big picture through uh, display technologies and basically make it task-orientated again and show the most important information rather than all the information, which is what the other displays were doing. So we've we've prioritized, and now we've done a hierarchical overview of the process where we start from the overview and we move into a unit view and then into a detailed view and then into a diagnostic view. So we now have four levels, whereas in this transition between the old panel and, and where we are today, we basically had just detailed views, and that made it very hard for operators to, one, navigate the information, but two, to also to be able to keep that big picture, and so they missed important events and we had accidents. It's too easy to get lost in in all the detail as opposed to have, being able to like drill down specifically where you need it. Yeah. Right. And then, Ian, you guys have worked with a lot of companies, so if you were to... Um, kind of talk about if you were like out somewhere and talking to people and saying, hey, what is the best control room you've seen? What are some of the things that stand out to make the control room like a really, really effective uh, okay, so, area? Uh, again, it's interesting. One of the things that we we did a few years ago, we we actually worked with Foxborough to, to identify the worst control room in the world, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, one of the... Uh, control rooms up in Washington, uh, D.C. It was an electrical power station control room. Actually won that uh, prize, if you like, and, and they got a free redesign out of it. But one of the big mistakes is that um, companies often bring in multiple parties to, to develop the control room. They like you bring in an architect to design the control room. They bring somebody in to design the console they bring somebody else in to design the HMI, then somebody else for the alarm system. And we get these multiple systems that have all been developed by different groups of people, and none of them fit together correctly. And so when you ask about what does a good control room look like, it's one that has all of those things brought together under one design. And that's one of the things that our company does is that we, we can uh, deliver all of the solutions in each of those areas. And so um, the best control room that we've done uh, is one in uh, Norway for Borregard. And basically they had 18 different control rooms and they consolidated down to one. And they've oh, been good. able to optimize um, their, their operators and provide better systems for them. And today they're running with less than seven operators controlling that whole facility. And it's doing better than it ever was. Um, but we've upgraded the HMI, the alarm systems, the control room design, and it's focused around good situation awareness. So we've we've got rid of the things that compromise situation awareness, like Chris was talking about lighting can compromise situation awareness because operators get tired over a 12-hour shift. So if we can keep them alert and we have fatigue countermeasures, um, those are the things that will actually make a big difference. But we work down the list of things like distractions, people, uh, bad traffic flow through the control room that can cause distractions, um, providing, uh, as I said, basically putting data into context instead of people having to rely on their memories 
and have, have a lot of cognitive workload, we've reduced that cognitive workload and we've made it now easier to see what's the most important things. And so a good control room is one that has good situation awareness. In other words, they can see what's happened in the past, they can see what's happening in the present, and they can predict what's going to happen in the future. And that's good situation awareness. Yeah, and I love um, something you mentioned before, too, that uh, that stuck with me that was interesting. An interesting point, too, is like something as simple as a control room operator being able to see their screens from the kitchen, right? Like that stuff gets forgotten, but is is very critical when it comes to safe operations. Um, and it's so simple and easy for, you know, if you've got four separate vendors pulling together this control room design, so easy for something like that to be missed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then again, that's sort of about... Uh, Having good room adjacencies, I mean, if you design the building wrong and that kitchen is no longer got a view into the control room and it's upstairs somewhere, you can never achieve that goal. Yeah. So having good room adjacencies is one of the big factors that we work through, making sure that we've got the right rooms with a view into the control room. And we also make sure we have rooms that can cause a disturbance that's far away. So, if, example, a HVAC room can be very noisy. So you yeah. don't want to put it on an adjacent wall to the control room. You want to push it further away. So we work through four different adjacencies. Uh, one that's got a required adjacency with you into the control room. And one that's fairly close to the control room. But then we have another one that's basically, it doesn't matter where it fits. Things like a janitor closet doesn't really matter where it fits, but it probably fits better somewhere near the toilets, right? You know, yeah. So uh, then we have negative adjacencies and we, we make sure those negative adjacencies don't disrupt. Um, like if you've got a large meeting room that um, a lot of visitors come into the control building for, we don't want them coming through the control room to, to get to that meeting room. So again, it's it's really yeah. about uh, designing uh, with situation awareness in mind. And then I'd love to um, hear a bit more, Ian, about like the the background of of my control room in, in your history. Like, what got you so you know inspired and and intrigued to start pursuing this um, in pursuing my control room and really being so deep in control room uh, design for you know helping with obviously achieving the increased safety. Uh, and efficiency and and then the value uh, through enhanced control room operations. So if you could just like give us a little bit of the origin story. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I started uh, out in the chemical industry and uh, basically I was electrical engineer, instrument engineer, and then control engineer and basically was basically designing the automation systems and sometimes we had control rooms, sometimes we didn't have control rooms. You know, sometimes it was just kind of putting a computer on the uh, production floor and uh, running that way, you know, inside a panel or whatever. Um, and we made a lot of mistakes in this evolution from pneumatics to uh, where we are today. And uh, it's a matter of identifying those. And uh, I had that opportunity um, back in the uh, 90s as we... Um, formed the Abnormal Situation Management Consortium, which was a consortium of 12 different energy companies like ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, BP, et cetera. And we looked at what are the practices that we've got today? Which ones are good? Which ones are poor? Um, what are the negative things we've got in the industry? Like alarm management was a major issue. And we put um, basically 10 years worth of research into re trying to resolve that issue 
we identified better practices in procedures, training, HMI design, etc. So we came up with a whole load of best practices. But also on the way, we identified common problems like uh, the impact of control rooms were having on accidents. So if you if you go back to Texaco Pembroke, which happened again back in the 90s, um, a major explosion became a, a, a public inquiry. Um, and again, loss of life and uh, potential for a, a, a big disaster. Um, we studied that incident and what we found was that Yes, the alarm system was a big contribution to the problem. The HMI didn't help the operators in the situation. The control room itself, um, again, had lots of flaws. And uh, basically, there were uh, causational factors that uh, basically was all focused around the control room. And it was about poor situation awareness or compromised situation awareness, as I like to talk about it. And so we addressed that. We've learned from these lessons now, and what we're going to do is we're going to apply some best practices in, in each of these areas, from console design to HMI design to alarm management to the control room design, procedures, training, etc. cetera, um, and we put that whole package together. One of the other big factors is around human performance is about having the right number of people doing the right jobs and making sure they're doing them correctly every time. And so basically we do workload studies to, to address those issues and, and basically look at the management systems that support operators in doing, doing their practices. So uh, again, we've, we've come up with solutions and, and gap analysis that we can do uh, as we go into a company and basically say, okay, let's, let's see where you are against these best practices and uh, then basically come up with a prioritized list of solutions because not everybody's got deep, top, deep pockets and not everybody can solve the problem overnight. So often it's sort of a, it's a 10 year uh, futuristic uh, plan that we put in place and they take it one bite at a time, like eating an elephant. And uh, basically they, they evolve again into something that's good. And after the end of 10 years, we, we see it and we saw that with Beauregard, that was a 10 year strategy we put in place. And um, today, um, you can see the fruits of that. We have a video of it on our website, mycontrolroom.com, and uh, people can see the differences that uh, it's made. And operators certainly enjoy that environment. At one time, they were struggling to hire people um, to come into their control rooms because there were terrible, dark, dirty halls. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. people fight to get that job, and uh, they, they get the top candidates who, who want to volunteer to work in that environment. Yeah. And Ian, you really touched on it. Like the reason why this is such an important topic and, you know, why you guys exist and, and why Crux is around as well is that safety issue that's involved. And, you know, you look at some of the, the recent oil spills, you know, you talked about some that were, you know, 50 years old, 25 years old, but we still have small spills that are happening. So, and pipelines are going to be around for a long time. So it's, you know, how do we work together with all the different companies that are out there that have that safety and efficiency kind of front and center for these pipelines? Um, You know, I was just wondering, again, you guys got into it from that aspect and you talked about the accidents and the spills that were out there, but um, how, again, maybe just jumping back into the human factors again on the recent spills and 
maybe just um, highlight why it is why this conversation is just so important. Yeah, I think as we basically look at uh, something that today we call human performance improvement, mm-hmm. um, yes. we we identify within human performance improvement what are some of the factors. Uh, from a human factors perspective, that impact. Obviously, ergonomics is a big one, okay, from design of screens and the distance of screens, viewing angles and stuff like that. That's a that's a big part of that human performance improvement. But there are other things like the typical human error. And one of our big issues is our short-term memory issue, right? Mm-hmm. And so we, we've had a practice of overloading operators during these periods, and they forget things. Okay, or they miss things. And so basically, we have to recognize that people have limitations, and we have to design for those limitations. And that's one of the things that we've done as we've tried to move away from reactive to proactive, is that um, we've given the operator a heads up that, that there's a problem starting. And he gets ahead of it before it starts avalanching and getting into that domino effect that we often see with alarm floods. And basically, the operator can't pick out what was the start and basically, where is it going to? And they basically just get out of the loop and they they struggle. So human performance is a big factor. And and even down to things like communications, Uh, 20% of all major accidents are breakdowns in critical communications. And those critical communications can be from operator to console operator to console operator, from console operator to field operator, from field operator to maintenance people. Um, 20% of accidents today recognized by OSHA um, are caused by breakdowns in critical communications. That's something we can fix. And something that we are basically, we've got to get operators to practice um, good communication practices and um, uh, try and identify where where there are gaps today in 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 the communication system. Yeah, and for like for listeners who you know are like, as we're we're broad, targeting a, a broad audience here on on this podcast, and like I think it's super important for you know folks to to see and realize that you know you see a headline of uh, an accident or an oil spill or whatever, and like folks just brush over, you know, they'll, they'll see the root cause as, oh, like someone missed a, someone missed a, an alarm or something like that, but they're not seeing, you know, exactly what you talked about, which is all these other factors around, uh, around the control room and why those are so critical and why the control room really is like, it's the heart of the operation, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a soul, right. And without it, you know, you're not running those multi-billion dollar assets safely and efficiently. And so, yeah. So having you guys on to, to dig into the nuances around that and just give folks some light on why all of those aspects are so important is um, yeah, is, is been super, uh, super great to dig into. Hey, Vicky is that um, senior management um, often treat the control room as no value add. And, and yes. that goes from the practices of years ago when they didn't even provide them with a kitchen, with a toilet. Your operators yep. used to have to go out and use a drain, yep. <laughs> right? Because there wasn't a toilet in the in, in the control room. It was yeah. seen as zero value had, and it was just a place to store instrumentation. Yep. And the operator was there just as a, a last-minute thought, yep. whereas today we design it around people and people needs. And the automation side of it today can go anywhere. I mean, some, sometimes it's miles away. It's no longer in the building um, yep. because of the way we've got technology today. Um, so things have changed a lot, 
And uh, basically, we're trying to teach senior managers that the control room is not zero value. It's very high value. Sure, and it will make value. a big difference from, from a profitability perspective. I mean, yeah. When we talk just about the HMI, we talk about a 50% improvement in the operator's ability to detect, diagnose, and respond to problems. That's a yeah. big difference. And um, you know, you, you, you're getting ahead of situations before they get out of control. Yeah. And uh, that's one of our main goals is to, uh, is to put people in control again rather than letting the control systems run. And when the control systems fail, panic. <laughs> yeah, and having the, the having to have the control room operators adapt to it, right? Like, like, and you know, there's it's great to hear there's been a lot of progress. But even in the last three years, I have heard a senior executive say that, oh, well, you know, I don't know, I don't think we're concerned with how our control room operators are, you know, executing, right? Like, that, that's the job they're paid to do. And and it's like, well, that's not really, you know, data shows over and over that that's not the right approach, right? Um, yeah. You know, and, and like you said, every time that a control room operator can be more proactive, that's safety and that's dollars, right, yeah, to to, to their P&L. So they need to be paying attention to it as executives. You know, it's not just a place where you go into the meeting room that overlooks the control room so you can show it off. Like, it, it's not just that, right? Yeah. And one of the big things that we identified in the SM program was that, not accidents, but just being in abnormal, which which tends to reduce equipment reliability, it impacts yeah. quality, productivity, etc., was costing the U.S. energy industry twenty five billion dollars a year. Yeah, and you know the number was actually bigger than that, but it was too scary to 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 talk about it. So we settled on twenty five billion dollars, and what <laughs> we actually saw reasonable. one year just just within the. Uh, ethylene part of the industry, we had a number of incidents that cost over $25 billion to the US economy. And so the money's there. And what we've got to try and get people to do is to recognize that being in this abnormal area of production is, is a very bad practice. And that basically, we want to know the moment we've gone off normal, and we want to correct it before we get into abnormal, while we're still in that uh, off normal uh, operating area and we never ever want to get up to the emergency area which is often where today we find ourselves because we can't control the abnormal area we haven't got any good practices apart from alarm management and again today we still have major issues in the industry as people haven't followed the good practices that have been laid down the standards yeah and that's where crux is trying to automate those procedures so you can get back into normal quite quickly. So yeah, that's a, that makes a big difference. And, and again, sort of uh, being proactive in, in things like that uh, will make a big difference and will save a lot of money. Yeah, and and, and the, the safety, right? So, yeah. so yeah, no, this, uh, this been, it's been great. I'm hoping for, you know, our, our executive folks and, and the investors and in that out there who listen or, you know, hearing about the, uh, the importance of the control room from some very, very uh, experts in the field. Um, so would love to hear, um, Ian and Chris, can you let us know your, your, your social uh, media information? Um, you know, I think you mentioned the website, if you could mention again, how folks can, can get in touch with you. Yeah, mycontrolroom.com is our main website. And again, the company's user-centered design services. Um, but um, we, we had, um, you know, Steve keeps uh, lots of information about what we're doing and some of the practices and um, some of the lessons learned. And we get a lot of testimonials from our, our clients who uh, 
you know, basically share uh, the, the difference it's made as they've done some of these uh, activities that we do. So we, we tend to focus more on LinkedIn uh, than yeah. anything else. We, you know, a lot of our customers um, are not interested in, in in some of the other media that's out there. Um, but um, you know, I think that's a, LinkedIn is a is a great resource, and that's the one I I favor most. Yeah, and that's how uh, we found you folks. Um, and yeah, I love the articles that uh, that Stephen puts out. I've read many of them. We've reshared them on our newsletters. Um, they're super informative. So definitely, definitely recommend folks check them out. Um, so yeah, so uh, subscribe to the show, everyone. Thanks for listening. Um, sign up for a newsletter or follow us on social media for uh, getting to the crux of it podcast. Today we had my control room. So thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.